Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we're going to tackle a topic that's a topic in our culture and over several different Sundays, investigate what the Bible has to say about that. If you would now, take out your Bibles, turn in them to the Gospel of John and chapter number one. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the New Testament and turn to page 71, and you would find yourself at John chapter one. And we'll be getting there a little later in our service. But today, we're going to be launching a three-part series that we have given the cover title of Current, as in a river current. One of my first personal exposures to a strong current happened in 1995 in Tomasopo, Mexico. What we were doing there in 1995 is we were on a mission trip from Wildwood, and I was there, and some of my family was there, and some others from Wildwood. And one of the things you would do when you're ministering in that area of Tomasopo is the team that came would always go off to this really beautiful area called the Bridge of God. And it was part of the Galenus River. Now, the Galenus River normally is a very calm river. And groups would always go there. And we decided we were going to go swim in that particular area. What we did not know, though, was that there had been very heavy rains before we got down there. And this river that had a very calm current had a very fast current. But we were swimming, not really understanding the differences because I'd never actually been there before. And at one point, one of the high school girls, not from Wild, but Wood, but another girl that was there, decided she was going to swim across the river. And as she was swimming across the river, the current began to pick her up. And she tried to fight it for a few moments, but then realized, I'm not going to be able to fight it. So she just went to floating on her back, allowing the river to begin to take her where it was going to take her. Well, one of the things that I noticed in another young man who was there by the name of James Engel, we both noticed that there was a problem because a little ways down the river, there was this area where there was heavy rocks and there was basically a little opening there. It was almost a little uh, swift current that was really pulling you through this little tiny, tiny area, and she was headed right for that. And then I noticed that beyond that was some white water, and there were a number of boulders, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. So at the same time, James and I dove in from different places and tried to grab her before she went through this really fierce opening. And James got to her before I did. I was a little further downstream, and I got right to that very opening, and I found myself being basically sucked through that opening. And I managed to grab underneath the boulder that was there, and I found this little protrusion, and I grabbed onto that, and then I held onto the rock, and rather than being swept in there and, and downstream to the white water and the boulders, I was slowly able to pull myself back and did not become a victim of that particular current. You see, that, that's a problem with a strong current. If you're not careful you can be carried away downstream, and sometimes downstream there are hazards and perils and, and pitfalls. The same thing is true of a cultural current. 
And if we allow a cultural current to carry us away downstream, there can be hazards and perils and pitfalls for individuals and for the church and for the culture. So we want to talk about this idea of current, but we have a subtitle to our study, and that is Navigating the Waters of Today's Same-Sex Culture. And the same-sex culture that we have around us is rising and it is surging. I last spoke about this on a Sunday morning seven years ago. And it's kind of amazing to look at what's happened in the past seven years. Over those seven years, a lot of things have happened. Lady Gaga came out with her hit song, Born This Way, which became an anthem for the homosexual community. In, in these last seven years, we've had a number of DOMA laws passed in states. The Defense of Marriage Act that's been passed to defend classic understanding about marriage. And in many states, that's been overturned in the courts. In these years, we've seen the legalization of same-sex marriage. It didn't really exist. It was right on the cusp seven years ago. And I now believe that uh, same-sex marriage is legal in 18 states out of our 50. A lot's happened in these years since then. There have been a lot of state laws passed. For example, in the state of California, you have SB 777. And what that state law says is this, that it is required of all public school districts and all grades to celebrate LGBT history in America. LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. It's the state law that every grade has to celebrate that history in America. In the years since, we've seen a lot of websites pop up. For example, gaychristian101.com. All kinds of websites popping up that publicly name the name of Christ, and they're dedicated to justifying the legitimacy of homosexual activity inside of the believing community. In these subsequent years, there have been so much material written. Multiple books have come out, even written by those who identify themselves as evangelical, who claim to embrace the inspiration of Scripture, who would say they hold to sola scriptura, and yet they're presenting a new interpretation, so-called, on classic passages that address the whole issue of same-sex relationships in the Bible. And these new interpretations are designed to validate same-sex sexual relationships on one level or another. For example, one book that just came out this year is entitled God and the Gay Christian. It's written by a young man in his 20s by the name of Matthew Vines. And I just want you to know that since we spoke about this a number of years ago, there's just been this avalanche of information that's come down. And I have literally, in the weeks preceding this series, have read thousands and thousands of pages of material. I've read multiple books, all kinds of online articles and online material, just in an attempt to try to get my arm around all of this so that I could effectively biblically evaluate it. The current navigating the waters of today's same-sex culture. Men and women, I don't have to tell you that the current is picking up. And 
I have some great concerns about potential hazards downstream, some perils and pitfalls that may befall our overall culture. Now, as we're beginning just to launch into this, I, I want to make one point very clear. It is really not pivotal what I think. It's really not pivotal what you think. It's really not pivotal what the culture is promoting. What is pivotal in all of this is what does God think? What does the word of God say? And what is the heart of Jesus? Now, a little later today, we're going to begin to look at some scripture. We're going to pick up that pace a whole lot more next week. But before we move any further along, what I want to do in the next few moments together is to lay some groundwork. We have a three-part series. It's really one message over three weeks. It's so important that we realize we're not going to get to all of the issues, all of the scripture, all of the questions in one week. We just cannot do that. So what I'm asking you to do and understanding this is one message over three weeks is to be patient and plan to come the next two Sundays. And our goal is to have a biblical dialogue that ultimately we want to bring some clarity and to bring some hope. So we just want to lay some groundwork in all of this. Now, part of that groundwork I want us to understand is that when it comes to the homosexual community or the homosexual movement, there is a spectrum of people inside of that umbrella. For example, on, on, on one end of the spectrum, you would have what we might call the radical homosexuals. They are the ones who totally reject God. They could care less about what the Bible has to say. And the people who are on the radical end of the spectrum are very aggressive and very attacking against anyone who would dare disagree with their behavior. And when you talk about this end of the spectrum, for years, this end of the spectrum has had a very organized agenda and strategy that they have been working through. And I want you to know, when you talk about the radical end of the homosexual movement, their ultimate aim is to explode all limitations on sexual behavior, including age. That's the radical realm. That's radical realm of the spectrum. And that's where they want to go with things. And much of what they're proposing in this radical realm I, I, realm, I have to tell you, is unfit for me even to share with you today. But people in the homosexual community fall in a spectrum. So you have this end of the spectrum. Another end of the spectrum might be somebody like this, someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, which we could call SSA, same-sex attraction, but they wish that they didn't. In fact, a lot of people on this end of the spectrum uh, wish they had a magic wand and they could make their same-sex attraction go away. An example of someone who would fall on this end of, of the spectrum would be this Matthew Vines, this 24-year-old guy that I mentioned, who identifies himself as an evangelical, who would say the only hope is Jesus. He would say, I believe in the full inspiration of Scripture. But here's what he says about homosexual activity. He says, there's only one expression that is legitimate, only one, and that would be a monogamous, long-term 
same-sex relationship, in essence, same-sex marriage. Matthew Vine says that's the only one that's valid. Everything else outside of that is wrong. And one thing I will say about Matthew Vine's uh, compared to the other end of the spectrum is he is quite a gentleman in his tenor of how he communicates. We need to understand, though, there's a spectrum. We need to take great care to not lump everyone into the same bucket. We want to be irenic. We want to be peaceable. We want to be fair. So there's a spectrum out there. Now, we could flip that around for a moment and say, well, those who would not agree that God approves of same-sex activity also fall into a spectrum. Uh, For example, on the far end of the spectrum, for those of us who may not agree, would be somebody like Westboro Baptist Church who will show up at these very emotional settings and they'll carry placards that says, God hates fags. And they communicate towards those in the homosexual community this hate and this utter disdain even though these people are people for whom Christ died. So there's a spectrum here also. And at the other end of the spectrum, I I would like to see myself being there and Wildwood being there and many others being there. Because in the other end of the spectrum, we might say, hey, we disagree with some of the life choices that you are making, but we care. We all struggle. We're all sinners. We're all really on the same level. We all need Jesus to be our rescuer. And so the same way I don't want to be lumped together with Westboro Baptist Church, we need to be careful not to lump everybody under the umbrella of the homosexual community. There's a spectrum that is there. So what we're doing for most of our morning today is to lay some groundwork Now, I want you to know as transparently as I can that much of this gives me a very heavy heart. Those who struggle with same-sex attraction, even if they do not act on it, experience a lot of isolation. They experience a lot of rejection. They experience a lot of deep struggle in their life. And the church at large too often has been a toxic atmosphere where someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction can be even afraid to share their struggle with anybody else. There is a fear that they have of ridicule. Why do they fear ridicule? Because they have overheard the pejorative, sarcastic, acidic, snide comments that are made about those who have same-sex attractions often in the name of humor, in the form of gay jokes. And that, men and women, it just gives me a heavy heart. Too many people who struggle with same-sex attraction issues just fear rejection. To them, the church is not a safe place. And I've shared this before, but I have had personal friends back to the time I was in high school who struggled with same-sex attraction in their life. Some of those friends I have known repeatedly for multiple decades. And I've heard of their struggle. Even here at Wildwood, many of us have relatives and we have friends who struggle with same-sex attraction. We have people 
here today who struggle with same-sex attraction in their life. And it just gives me a heavy heart. See, many in the gay community are hurting and they're acting out over their pain. And maybe they experienced, as I've heard people tell me, they experienced abandonment and emotional isolation. Maybe they have experienced, as I have been told personally, mistreatment and molestation in their life. And many are just confused and they experience a lot of fear and uncertainty. They would love to have someone to talk to to be able to share some of their struggles. And yet they feel the need to keep their desires shrouded in secrecy. Many who struggle with same-sex attraction are frankly just without hope. And to them it just seems that their homosexual lifestyle is inevitable and it's impossible to change. I want to quote some words of one woman who came out of the gay lifestyle. She wrote this. She said, if you'd asked me a year ago if I could have come out of the gay movement, it would have been equivalent to asking me to move this building. Impossible. And yet it wasn't. When I look at the situation in our culture today, it really gives me a heavy heart. I have a heavy heart for my friend, John Yates, who I serve with on the Family Life speaker team. For 30-plus years, John Yates has been the pastor, the rector of the historic Falls Church Episcopal Church in Falls Church, Virginia. You know, I know you probably don't know anything about that church, but Falls Church has been a strong evangelical beacon in that area of Virginia since 1732. An outstanding church. Uh, the people of Falls Church have invested over these last 30 plus years tens of billions of dollars in their ministry facilities and their ministry programs. And, uh, you know, when you're in the Episcopal denomination, things are a little different at Wildwood. We've invested millions of dollars here also, but... As a church family, we actually own these facilities, but in the Episcopal church denomination, even though the congregation is the one who invests all the money, technically speaking, it's the denomination that owns everything. And in 2006, John Yates and his leadership decided to apply to withdraw from the Episcopal church over the fact that the Episcopal church had approved the ordaining of same-sex clergy, which to them was... A, a, a ratification of that kind of behavior. Um, the denomination took them to court and went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they lost their, their entire ministry home. Not only that, but they had saved up $2.6 million uh, for other ministry endeavors they wanted to do, and, and that savings account was ruled by the court to also belong to the denomination. They lost all of that. Now they're continuing on. They've now joined with the Anglican denomination. It's Falls Church, Anglican Church there. But it's been hard. It has been gut-wrenching. So a lot of what's going on just gives me a heavy heart. I th there's another thing that gives me a heavy heart as we just lay some groundwork. And that is that the atmosphere today increasingly will not allow a biblical dialogue on this subject. 
Increasingly, you cannot talk about this without being labeled and without being attacked as outdated or archaic, without being labeled or attacked as uncaring and judgmental. Even if you graciously disagree, you end up being labeled what? Bigot. You end up being labeled homophobic. It's a weird term. It has an odd odor of a psychiatric disorder, and frankly, I don't like it being thrown my way. You increasingly cannot have a biblical dialogue without people accusing you of being intolerant and hateful without being accused of, quote, terrorizing homosexuals with religious dogmatism. And that just gives me a heavy heart. I mean, why can we not have a conversation about this? You know that I can still love people who have same-sex attraction. I've loved a number of them for decades. I can still love someone who's caught up in homosexual behavior and not condone their choices if God doesn't condone them. God loves the world, and yet he doesn't tolerate our sin. You remember when Jesus got up and he was overlooking the city of Jerusalem, that sinful city in Luke 19, 41, you remember what his reaction was? He wept. He wept. So what we're, what we're doing here is taking some time just to lay some groundwork, creating an atmosphere where we can have a little bit of a biblical dialogue about this. Now, there's another part of, of uh, the groundwork I want to do, and that is to talk for a moment about different categories of church reactions to the same-sex culture. Different reactions. And I, I think we could, we could identify four different categories of church reactions to the same-sex culture, and I want to look at them, and I don't want us to be one of the first three. The first category of church reactions to the same-sex culture we could identify as being the permissive church, the permissive church. The permissive church ultimately winks at what God says is sinful. But what the permissive church does is out of a fear of offending or out of, out of a desire to just be inclusive, the permissive church succumbs to the societal current or the societal pressure. And what the permissive church quickly finds itself doing is revising the classic passages in the Word of God that deal with this subject matter. The permissive church starts rationalizing, they start twisting, they start turning, they start inserting ideas. Uh, they bend the text to make the passages say what they wish the passages said. And I want you to know, I'll tell you, if you do reading on this, some of the most creative hermeneutical gymnastics, interpretive gymnastics is employed to come out with the end of what people really want. I don't want us to be the permissive church. There's a second category of church reaction, and we might identify it this way, the judgmental church. What does the judgmental church do as it looks upon the same-sex community? Well, it attacks them with a harsh spirit, it, it slams them without any compassion at all. And, and the attitude of the judgmental church is something like this. My sin is minor compared to yours. 
Yours is at a whole nother level. The attitude seems to be in the judgmental church, God forgives me, but I have a lot of great doubts about him forgiving you. The implication of the judgmental church to the same-sex community is you are the ultimate sinners. You know what's interesting about the judgmental church? You know that the judgmental church has been very quick to ascribe the demise of marriage in our culture to the same-sex community? That's what the judgmental church does. They say, hey, man, marriage is going downhill, and it's your fault. Same-sex, folks, it's your fault. The reality, men and women, is that the heterosexual world has been contributing for decades to the demise of God's plan of marriage in our culture. The heterosexual community has been contributing to this for generations, undermining God's design of marriage. The heterosexual community has been doing this through our unfaithfulness, through our abuse, and through divorce and so forth. So this is not, the demise of marriage is not a same-sex community issue. Now, they may be contributing to that, But in the heterosexual world, we've been already contributing to that for decades. There is a third category of of church reaction to the same-sex community, and we could identify it this way, the indifferent church. The indifferent church. And I want you to know, as transparently as I can communicate, now remember, we're just laying groundwork. This is maybe the biggest danger to many evangelical churches today to be the indifferent church. What does the indifferent church do? Well, out of a fear of offending or a fear of being attacked or a fear of being labeled, they view the subject matter of the same-sex culture as a hot topic that we're just going to keep our hands off of. We want to avoid that altogether. We'll just sort of retreat back over here. We'll dodge over here. We'll go silent over here. The indifferent church takes an ostrich-in-the-sand approach. The indifferent church says, well, let somebody else speak out on this. Let somebody else take a stand. That's the indifferent church. Now, I will say this. I don't necessarily think that a church becomes an indifferent church due to an active decision that they make, it's, it's more of just subconsciously they move that way. Subconsciously, the church develops what I might call spiritual laryngitis. How many people were here in 1999? Let me see your hands if you were here in 1999. So I don't know, uh, that's probably less than a sixth of those of you who are here. But let me tell you what was happening in 1999. In 1999, we were undergoing a capital campaign here at Wildwood, and we wanted to communicate the vision about that capital campaign. And so what I was doing was I was speaking. I was speaking in home meetings and speaking in multiple meetings all over several weeks in the church. And what happened to me is I developed some laryngitis from that. It was very severe, so severe that all I could do was eke out a little whisper And what was interesting about that experience is because it was severe and I tried to protect my voice, over a period of days, I actually 
subconsciously forgot how to speak normally. It seems like you couldn't do that, but it happened. And even after my throat was repaired in terms of the laryngitis that I had, I couldn't talk. And I had to go to speech therapy to be retrained how to speak normally. But that was a subconscious thing. I didn't sit there and think, you know what, I'll just forget how to speak normally. Just a subconscious event happened in my life. And I think that happens a lot of times in the indifferent church. And suddenly, without consciously deciding to do it, the different church has spiritual laryngitis. And while the church is not called to coerce the culture in some way, we are called, right, men and women, to be salt and to be light. What does salt do? Salt helps to preserve God's standards. And light shines the way, the way to righteousness and the way to abundant life. And so we do have a calling to be a witness to God's nature and work and to his truth and to scripture. I want to share with you a quote from Martin Luther. Very powerful quote. I want you to particularly notice uh, the middle of it and the end of it. I have those highlighted on the slide there. But here's what he said. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, here comes the important part, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. And then the concluding thought he makes, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested. And men and women, I think that's right where we are. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 13, if the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. We don't want to be the permissive church. We don't want to be the judgmental church. We don't want to be the indifferent church. What should we be? And that leads us to the verse of Scripture in John 1 that we opened to at the very beginning. So look in John chapter 1. At verse 14, this first part of John is talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He is described as the Word. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And then we have this descriptive phrase of Jesus Christ that is given. Full of grace and truth. That was the description given of Jesus, full of grace and truth. I wonder what the description should be of the church of his followers. We should be full of grace and truth. And so that's the fourth category of church, what I would like to call the grace and truth church. What is a grace and truth church do. It accurately handles the word of truth, even if it's unpopular. The grace and truth church declares the truth and says that all sin, no matter what it may be, is sin. And yet the grace and truth church communicates that God's grace is able to transform hearts. He is able to bring hope and healing to anyone and everyone. So we spent a lot of time this morning laying some groundwork that I think is very 
very important. Now, before we look at some, some scripture this morning, I want you to know what's coming ahead. What's coming next week is we're going to look at the primary passages on this whole subject matter in the Bible. We're going to look at three what I call foundational passages which talk about God's design for marriage. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, Genesis 2, 18 and 21 to 25, and Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. We're going to take a look at those passages. We're also going to look at, in terms of primary passages, three pivotal passages, two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, Leviticus 18, verses 6 to 23, Leviticus 20, verses 10 to 16, and Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 32. Now, you don't need to write all those down. They're going to be all part of the discussion questions that are going to go out on the website and in the city uh, later on this morning. But we're going to look at those passages. So you're going to, and I'm going to have to come prepared with our sleeves rolled up because we're going to have a lot of Scripture we're going to look at next time. What's coming two weeks from now? Well, we're going to begin to address a lot of the questions, questions like, isn't homosexuality inborn? Isn't homosexuality unchangeable? How are we to respond to all of this? What are we to do? Where are the resources we need? We're going to cover all of that. So that's where we are headed. But before we get there, I want us to turn in the New Testament to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's right behind the book of Acts and the book of Romans, and chapter number 6 and we want to look at verses 9 to 11. Now, while you're turning there, I just want us to know that God does not laser target those who have same-sex attraction. God is not fixated on those who are part of the homosexual community. In fact, what is really fascinating to me is when you look at most of the passages in the Bible that relate to this subject matter, homosexual behavior is part of a list of behaviors that God says is not a part of his will, that God would say is wrong. And we see that very thing right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Let's read through these verses. You can just follow along. Paul's writing, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here comes, men and women, a list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, here's what I want us to notice from this particular set of verses. There is hope in help for everybody. There is hope in help for fornicators. Who are fornicators? Fornicators are those who have sex before marriage. 
There is hope and there is help, it says, for idolaters. Say, so, well, I'm not an idolater. You know, idolater, anybody is practicing idolatry when, when we worship something ahead of God. There is hope and help here for adulterers, those who have been unfaithful to their spouse. There is hope and help here for those who are thieves, those who steal things, whether it's from work or someplace else. There's hope and help here for those who are covetous, those who sit around and desire so much to have what that person has. There's hope and help here for those who are drunkards, for those who get high on drugs, for those who get drunk on alcohol. There's help and hope for them. There's hope and help for those who are revilers. What does that really mean? It means verbal abusers. There's hope and help for them. I'm not going to ask for hands, but so many of us would have to put our hands up in one category or another. And yet the beauty is verse 11 is there. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, set apart unto a relationship with me. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, I want you to think about that list. When he says to them, Such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified. He's not saying, you're no longer tempted to do any of those things. Listen, if you have a a life pattern problem with any of these areas, you're going to still, even after coming to know Jesus Christ, have the potential of being tempted in those areas. He's not saying, hey, you're no longer tempted to do any of those things. What he's saying is you have now experienced victory You're no longer defined by those things. See, men and women, the issue is not the greatness of our sin. The issue is the greatness of the power of God. And every one of us are marred image bearers. I was just thinking earlier this morning, and it just my own weaknesses, my own tendency to do sinful and make sinful, it's just, oh. But that's why Jesus died. That's why he died. In the book of Isaiah chapter 53, where it's a chapter that really talks about the person of Jesus Christ in verse six, just some amazing phraseology there. It says this, all of us, Everybody here today, everybody listening, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've all made choices to walk away from the will of God. All of us, each of us. Then it goes on to say, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all no matter what may be besmirching our life, the fall on Jesus Christ. And I I just want everyone to know, no matter what your life situation may be, no matter what flavor of sinful rebellion you may have in your life, as I have in my own, that Jesus loves you. I want you to know that Jesus 
died for you. I want you to know that Jesus desires to deliver you and me from our sin. He wants to have a relationship with you. The most important message we could ever convey. What a great thought it is when we look at our sin to hear Jesus Christ say, such were you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to never have any trouble with temptation, but to experience victory. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and we're going to sing a closing song this morning. And uh, it's a song that has great lyric in it. And it's going to be an opportunity for every single one of us who know Jesus to be able to worship him. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. And I just want to share some of the lyrics of that song with you, and we'll sing them in just a moment. But the lyrics go like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Part of the lyric goes this way. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. No matter what sin we may be dealing with in our life, men and women, nothing is impossible with God. Let's all stand together and worship him. Thank you.